My ambition after that trip to the Highlands was simply to see if Tasmania could make a really good single malt whiskey. We don't expect everyone to like these wines, so yes, there's some risk. Drink more sherry, because that's when you can really educate yourself on what happens in maturation. The thing is with Australian that is you put them in a gin, the aftertaste invariably is just bitter and unpalatable. I think the Irish whiskey landscape is going to be wildly different over the next five years. This is the Drinks Adventures podcast. I'm James Atkinson, and this is the show where I speak to some of the world's most exciting producers of beer, wine and spirits, and uncover trends and issues in the drinks industry today. How to Drink Australian is a landmark wine book by American sommeliers Jane Lopes and Jonathan Ross. Jane and Jonathan have intimate knowledge of the wine scene in Australia. Having both worked professionally here, Jane as wine director at renowned Melbourne restaurant Attica and Jonathan as beverage director at Rockpool Dining Group. Jane and Jonathan were so blown away by the wines they experienced during their time in Australia that upon returning to the US in 2020, they founded Legend, a wine imports company specialising in Australian wine. With a roster that includes a couple of producers that have previously featured on this podcast, Sailor Seeks Horse and Stargazer out of Tasmania. With their new book, How to Drink Australian, Jane and Jonathan aim to fill the void of quality literature on Australian wine. The book features exhaustive analysis of every significant region, stunning and detailed maps, producer profiles and more, all curated with a reverence for Australia's first custodians. I caught up with Jane recently for this interview that I'm excited to share with you on the Drinks Adventures podcast. Well, Jane Lopes, thanks so much for joining us on the Drinks Adventures podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Congratulations on this incredible book. I've only just started traversing the the pages and digging into all of the amazing content, not to mention the images and everything else and the maps that are in there. It looks like just such a a huge investment by Murdoch Books and an incredible investment of your time and and, uh, Jonathan's time as well. So maybe just talk me through like how it was actually conceived and what the last few years have looked like for you working on this project. Yeah, uh, I guess I'll go back a little further than the beginning of the book. So John and I met working in restaurants in New York. In late 2016, I was offered a job running the wine program at Attica. Neither of us had ever been to Australia before, but we said, why not? Let's go to Australia. And we were just absolutely blown away by the wine scene and, and really the access to wine and access to educational resources that we had in the United States, really in no way prepared us for what was actually going on in Australia. So we kind of early on hatched this plan that we would import Australian wine to the U.S. when we returned to the U.S. And and we did that. And kind of our, our first container landed in October of 2020. We started showing the wines to people. And, you know, like we anticipated, people were really excited about them. And trade would taste these wines and say, you know, these are really exciting and a lot different than kind of what I've been exposed to for Australian wine. How do we learn more about Australian wine? There just wasn't sort of a a really comprehensive, but engaging over modern overview of Australian wine. You know, I think Halliday and Oz Clark and their last editions were in the early 2000s. And so we just felt like there wasn't that resource to direct people to. So we, you know, uh, <laughs> kind of foolishly said, let's, uh, let's just write it ourselves. And 
I don't think we knew at the outset quite quite what an undertaking it was going to be. But now that it's done, we're really glad that we've done it. And yeah, we just kind of started doing the interviews, started doing the research. We kind of banded together a, a tag team group of people to to contribute. You know, we were both Americans. We spent three years in Australia. We're not trying to claim that we are the be all end all experts on Australian mine by any means. You know, we're just willing to kind of do the research and talk to the right people and read the right things and and try to put it all together. So we brought on Kavita Faella, who is awesome, works for Sean Smith, has done a lot of writing and research, and she was a really necessary kind of sounding board for, you know, making sure we weren't missing anything from not being on the ground. We brought Mike Benny on later in the process, who yeah, has obviously really great insight to, to what's going on in Australia right now. Um, Martin Von Weiss is the cartographer, and he's really awesome and has a passion for wine as well as maps. And so we kind of just were able to sort of tie in all these different elements and people to really make a book that, that we're super proud of. And, you know, when you compare the amount of literature there is out there about Australian wine, how would it compare to other countries around the world that are well known for wine? I don't think the scholarship on Australian wine anywhere near matches the the quality of wine. And I, I don't mean that in any way as a slight towards Australian wine writers, because I think there's actually a, a really large number of excellent Australian wine writers. But the actual kind of books on Australian wine, if you compare it to, you know, France, there should be a book just on the Yarra Valley and just on Tasmania. And, you know, all of these regions really have enough great wine being made and history and unique terroir elements that there could be, you know, all these individual books on these great regions. And there's barely a handful of books on Australia as a whole. Do you think that that's because just being a small market overall and probably fewer publishers that maybe publishers would be under the impression that is there a market for a book on some of these individual regions? Totally, totally. And I think publishers have and do question if if there's a market for a book on Australian wine and especially an international market. I think the fact that John and I are Americans was helpful to convince publishers, but publisher in particular, that there is this market and that we're going to be on the ground here really, you know, ringing the bell for Australian wine and convincing people that they not only need to be tasting these wines and drinking these wines and buying these wines, but also learning about these wines because it's such a kind of rich country in terms of its diversity. When you embarked on your importing business, what were some of the immediate reactions that you got from the trade who might have conveyed to you maybe stereotypical ideas that they had about what Australian wine was about? Yeah, I mean, the sort of pervasive narrative about Australian wine in the US is that it's either mass-produced critter wine or it's big, bold Barossa Shiraz. And certainly those things exist, but there was there was not a lot of knowledge of the you know the infinite nuance that the country has, and so, and and I think every country sort of has its bulk wine. You know, it's not a unique thing to Australia by any means, but just in the U.S. in particular, you know, Australia really came to be defined by yellowtail, and so people were really blown away just by the quality because I think when you kind of expect that a country is sort of just producing more commercially oriented wine that when you taste these really artisanally made wines, you know, maybe there's an 
80 case production or 250 case production or even a thousand case production, all really, you know, small in the scheme of things that, you know, people were really blown away by the quality and the diversity. Are there any reasons why you think that Australian wine has, aside from the, you know, the, the volume brands that you refer to, has kind of struggled in the U.S.? Australia was really sort of having a heyday in the U.S. in the late 90s and early 2000s. And it was both sort of the Parker Point wines that were becoming quite popular. But also, you know, there was a lot of really interesting stuff starting to come into the market as well. Cooler climate wines, a variety of grapes, small producers. But, you know, 2007 hit and, you know, global financial crisis and, America's dollar got quite weak and people were spending less. Um, And Australia's dollar actually wasn't hurt as bad. So all of a sudden, sort of a beneficial currency exchange became uh, kind of the opposite. And all of a sudden, Australian wine was double the price in the US and and people just didn't have the money that they had before to be spending on wine. So pretty much almost everything fell out of the market at that point, except things that you know, could sort of maintain low cost through volume. And I think that's when sort of Yellowtail and Molly Duker really ascended, really came to define Australian wine. So I think, you know, if 2007 had never happened, I think it'd be a lot of a different landscape in the US. But because it did, it really, for a while, that was sort of the pervasive style. And that is what came to define Australian wine to Americans you know, long before us, there have been small importers who've been paving the way to introduce and reintroduce these high quality wines. Um, and I think we just need to to keep doing it and keep getting these wines out in front of people until we kind of can reshape the narrative on Australian wine over here. What are the wine regions in Australia that are currently exciting you most? Um, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> You know, Swan Valley is definitely one that's really kind of captured my attention just really in the last like year. So if you kind of flip through the book, a lot of regions get their own chapter and then some regions are mentioned in sort of the other regions in that state. So for example, in Western Australia, Great Southern and Margaret River have their own chapters and Swan Valley is discussed in in the other Western Australia chapter. Already, just in since kind of the year since we've sort of formalized that structure, it's the region where I'm like, that region should have its own chapter. (laughs) (laughs) And so for for the next edition, it it will if there is a next edition. But I just think it's a really exciting time there. And there's lots of, you know, there's a combination of great old vine material, but also you have a kind of new generation who are just really excited about you know, paving a new path that's not commercially oriented, that's fresh and modern and just kind of bright styles that represent Grape in Place really well. So that's definitely a region that's very much on my radar. I think it's probably like 10 years behind sort of like Gippsland's trajectory in terms of just uh, exciting generation of new producers who are just really dedicated to the region. You know, it's not a trend. It's not coming in and buying some grapes because they're, you know, because the wines are fetching a lot of money. It's just people who grew up there in the area or, you know, just really believe in the region who are trying to invest in it. And those, those regions are, are really exciting to me. Any others? I mean, Tasmania, I think is incredibly exciting. There's just 
a real, you know, strong contingent of excellent producers who are making just just world-class wine, you know, and these are wines I would put up against the great Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays of Burgundy, the great Rieslings of, you know, Germany and Alsace. I think these are wines that really hold their own on the global stage. I think Adelaide Hills is a, a really exciting time where you sort of have this this cross-pollination between sort of the the stalwarts of the region and the kind of younger natural wine set who are sort of together kind of have really improved farming across the region. You know, it's low, it's low intervention winemaking, but still with real attention to um, the soundness of the finished product. So I think, you know, a number of producers across Adelaide Hills, you know, Naringa, Murdoch Hill, Basket Range Wine, Gentle Folk are really making some of the great wines in Australia right now. You know, I, I really could probably name about every region and, and talk about <laughs> producers I'm excited about. You know, I think I think there's a lot of cool stuff going on in the Barossa. You know, I think in McLaren Vale, I think Grenache in those regions is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, you have a lot of old vine uh, Grenache in both regions that, you know, I think 10, 15 years ago was, was being put in GSMs or sort of made in a, a little bit blockier more alcoholic, sometimes oakier style. And now those wines are just like singing, you know, they're just like people are allowing Grenache to like, you know, people are talking about it as the Pinot Noir of Barossa McLaren Vale, where it can be this like really delicate sort of filigreed style of wine that's just so lovely and really offers incredible value. And I would put those wines up against the great Grenaches from the Prerod or Chateauneuf de Pop or or really anywhere. And I would always kind of for consistency and clarity and sort of articulation always um really always favor the Australian versions. Well, the French won't like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Chateauneuf de Pop is a little bit of a crapshoot, right? Like you don't quite know what you're gonna get in terms of sometimes oakiness, sometimes a lot of heavier, darker grapes beyond Grenache. Sometimes Britannomyces, you know, I think that I do think there's a lot more consistency uh, right now of great Australian Grenache across the country. But yeah, I mean, one of the absolute highlights of this book was just really digging into every single region. And, you know, I was sort of as I was writing the book, just keeping a casual list of like wines I I need to try that I hadn't tried before. And the list got really long (laughs) because there's just a lot of exciting stuff going on. The point you just made about Chateauneuf, it's kind of an interesting one because we don't have those appellations in Australia. Do you think that that actually makes, for wine consumers, it makes life a bit easier? That they'll sort of know what they're going to (laughs) get? Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing, right? The French have done a really good job of branding those appellations. So there's really sort of a prestige and, and price associated with Chateauneuf de Pop and Von Romanet and Margot and, you know, all these sort of premium appellations across France and Italy's done a good job of that too in Spain. And that's something that Australia, and you know, hasn't done as much. And, and I don't think I want to, don't want to say as well, because I don't necessarily want to say it's the best thing, but, but these, you know, the regions are very, they're geographic, right? There isn't sort of a, maybe you could make an argument a little bit in the Barossa that there's sort of a premium name that attached and, and a few other places like Kunawara and maybe the Yarra Valley. 
but certainly not to the extent that's sort of in these really heralded uh, regions from from Europe. So I guess that could be sort of registered as a, a bad thing and that, you know, Australian wine, a lot of it is incredible in quality and deserves to kind of fetch the same price points as those regions. But what I think will be the benefit going forward is just the dexterity that you have and not being sort of locked down in what grapes you can plant in make in a region, you know, I think climate change is coming for a lot of regions across the world. And, you know, the dexterity to say, well, maybe our region is better for Grenache and Mouvedre than it is for Cab and Pinot Noir, you know, whatever it is, and just sort of be able to, to really plant and grow the grapes that are best for a region, um, I think will serve Australia well in, you know, the, the decades to come. What are some of the unique challenges that you see affecting Australian wine regions? You know, uh, water shortages and climate change, those types of things. This was a question we we asked every single interview we did. And there's a, a section at the end of each chapter where we discuss these things. It's, it's We call it hubbub. <laughs> and the idea is just, yeah, what are people worried about? But also what are people excited about? What are people talking about, you know? And so it really is distinct for each region. But the two things you named are definitely things that came up a lot, you know, water and, and climate change, and certainly those are related. So there are a lot of, of regions that are experiencing changes in climate that they're adapting to. They're, you know, with the way that sort of Australia structures its water rights, there's also a lot of really water insecure regions too. So those are definitely kind of a top concerns. You know, we also heard everything from phylloxera to branding issues to, you know, the tyranny of distance in places like Henty and Great Southern. Each region sort of had an individual concerns. What was interesting was nothing was too bleak, you know, like everyone still felt really hopeful about the promise of their region, about the quality of their region. And there almost was this pervasive attitude of like the best is yet to come, you know, which I think is a really amazing attitude. I think it's an exciting thing about Australian wine and it just is really a testament to the character, the resilience of, you know, Australian vintners. I think from reading the collateral for the book that you've actually profiled something like 600-odd producers in this book. Is that correct? That seems like a, a remarkable number. I mean, it, obviously, I think I believe there's somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 wineries in the country, and so that's a pretty solid percentage that must have been very difficult to kind of work out who, who to include. Yes. And so 600 are mentioned in some way, not every single one is profiled. Sometimes it's people who are on a map. We did one sentence blurbs for a lot of producers at the end of a section who didn't get their profile. That definitely was a really hard, hard thing because this book has already about doubled in size from what (laughs) it was originally intended to be. All of those people who are kind of those one lines did have a full profile at, at one point and we just had to make the decision that some things just had to be condensed for space. And and we discuss in the introduction of the book that this list of producers should really be seen as a starting point, not an ending point. And even like 
some of the producers in our own imports portfolio don't get a full profile. <laughs> um, and it really was just, you know, we had to make a decision about who are the most significant producers generally. And then obviously there's going to be some subjectivity to it. And, and that was where it was really me, John, Kavita, Mike, our editor, Don Sweeney, we kind of came together and we said, you know, what needs to be here? What can we maybe conclude a shorter profile? And I think already there's probably people we wish we'd gotten in there more significantly. So yeah, hopefully, (laughs) if this is successful, hopefully we have a second edition that can be 800 pages and we can really, you know, include everyone. Because it just, I mean, even with the hundreds of profiles we did there are fantastic producers that were left out. And I think that's just the reality of the incredible amount of talent and quality in the winemaking scene in Australia today. How do you think that the idea of land custodianship, as is taught by Indigenous Australians, can be applied to wine growing? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And I think it's it's one that we discussed quite a bit in the book. And certainly that question could have its own book. I think a lot of wine scholarship for colonized countries sort of starts at the time of colonization. (laughs) And obviously, Vitis vinifera is uh, native to Europe. and, And so that impulse is understandable. But the care of the land in Australia has been going on for at least 50, 60,000 years, more in some parts of the country. That's really a, a mentality that I think a lot of modern vintners are taking on, right? Where it's not about how can I squeeze the, the most profit I can out of the land. It's really how can I take care of this land so that I leave it better than I found it. And that I leave it better for future generations. And, you know, and we create a product that really is a beautiful testament to land and country and not a result of preying on that country. So I think that's sort of an attitude we're seeing a lot and that we did see a lot through throughout our interviews. I don't think people have all the answers of what exactly that looks like. But I think just that that realization and the impulse to turn to the teachings of the First Nations of one's land and see what sustained that land for the last 60,000 years and try to use those teachings to, to move forward with, with land care. Now, this is going to be a tough one, but can we focus in on a handful of producers that you really think that we should be celebrating right now? Now, should this be things that might be a little surprising or under the radar? I mean, obviously there's, yeah. If you're going to say penfolds or something like that, there's probably not that much value in that. So yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, I think I'm going to leave out our imports portfolio because obviously we just adore all of the producers in that portfolio. So just for (laughs) the sake of fairness and not trying to choose. You'll piss off some of them if you don't don't mention them. (laughs) I know. So let's just leave leave those on the table. People can go to our website and see all 33 of those producers who we think are obviously really significant. I will throw out Mewstone in Tasmania. I think those are some of the finest Rieslings being made in Australia and kind of 
Definitely. It's, it's a little bit of a twist. It's not your kind of typical Clear Valley, Eden Valley Riesling style, but I just think they're really incredibly balanced and profound and nuanced and just really, really lovely, lovely wines. I've already mentioned them briefly, but Basket Range wine, I think is really, really exciting. You have Schulte Broderick, who's a super young guy and has already kind of, you know, he grew up in this vineyard and has already really refined his style. I don't know if you've had a chance to taste any of their 2022s, but, you know, we've tasted their wines in the last few vintages and they just get better and better every single year. It's really quite astounding. I think there's some of my favorite Cabernet and Cabernet blends being made in Australia right now, which you don't necessarily think of for the Adelaide Hills. And their their Pinots are also just absolutely phenomenal. And I think for the prices, they're all, they're great, great values. Um, I think the Brodericks planted in like, let's say the seventies, like they were the very first people to plant in that region. And then of course that region sort of became known for the natural wine movement. And if you had the wines, maybe five years ago, they would have been leaning a little bit harder into that movement and a little bit lower sulfur and that sort of thing. And I think they've just reached a really beautiful balance now where they're, you know, they're low intervention, they're native yeast, they're no new oak or very limited new oak if there is any, but like just beautiful, pristine, pure, you know, clean sound styles. I, I want to do a Grenache producer for my last choice. You know, maybe I will say Ministry of Clouds in McLaren Vale. I think the work they're doing is really excellent. I mean, you could also say someone like Vanguardist who's doing great work with Grenache. And, you know, you could say kind of more classic producers like a Cirillo who, you know, have the country's, the world's oldest Grenache vines and are making really beautiful wines with them. So I know I kind of cheated, but <laughs> named a few, a few great Grenache producers in that Barossa McLaren Vale world that are definitely, again, if, if you had Grenache from those regions five to 10 years ago and you weren't digging it, the, I think the styles are very different even in that short time span and definitely worth a, a revisit. Is that something that you, you know, like a trend that you could draw across the whole of Australia is just that it's evolving incredibly, incredibly quickly? Totally. And I think some regions and styles probably more quickly and acutely than others, but absolutely. But I guess without totally abandoning tradition and precedent either, right? Where there is really, you know, it's not like Swan Valley producers are ripping up all the beautiful old vines, Chenin Blanc and Grenache and you know, I don't know, planting <laughs> Muller Turgau or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, it, it is really with, I think, a reverence to tradition, almost first and foremost, you know, I think you look at a lot of the exciting young producers, a lot of times they're, they're working with unfashionable grapes that are, were planted 80 years ago in their region, you know, I'm thinking of like the Barossa Valley and like a producer like Rasa, tiny producer, working with Old Vine, Semillon and Palomino and Muscat in the Barossa and making these really modern wines with these grapes. And so I think it's, yes, absolutely innovation and development, but with an eye towards, always with an eye towards sort of maintaining the best things about the past. Fantastic. Jane, is there anything else that you kind of wanted to highlight? To be honest, like as excited as we are about this book coming out into the world, we're a little nervous about it too, because 
this was a, a huge undertaking and a lot to cover. And, and I think there will be instances where we got something wrong or we didn't include everyone we should have or, or whatever it is. And so what I always kind of want to communicate is that this project is really, really is sort of a love letter to Australian wine. And that doesn't mean we always got it right, but, but we hope that the book is sort of taken in the spirit it was conceived, which is really to help create a greater enthusiasm for Australian wine around the world. I think it's certainly going to do that. Uh, Jane, thanks so much for taking the time to have a chat with us and congratulations on this book. It's a phenomenal achievement, I think. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.